Welcome to the Birding Life Podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the birders that pursue them. This is episode 37 and today's guest is author, artist, conservationist and birder Duncan Butchard. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lasser bird logging app, Spot, Plot, Play a Part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. Be sure to follow this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on, and please take some time to rate and comment on it. If you're listening to this podcast between the 16th of November and the 15th of December 2020, you're listening at the right time because we are right in the middle of our 30 days of Christmas competition where we are giving away 30 amazing bird-related prizes over 30 days. Head on over to our Facebook or our Instagram pages to check out how to enter. And also check out our four-part Ultimate Birders Christmas Wishlist on our website to get lots of great ideas for birding-related gifts. Everyone that enters the competition over the 30 days goes into a draw to win a pair of Vortex 10x42 Diamondback Binoculars sponsored by Wilo Distributors. Also check out the Youth Birding Podcast. Chris is doing an amazing job interviewing some of the best young birders around. Last week's guest was Tristan Odia, a birder from KZN, who shares all about his passion for nature, birding, and his love for herping. The podcast is available on all major podcast hosting platforms, so take some time to check it out. Duncan's book, Garden Birds in Southern Africa, is available from Wild Books online store. If you like the work that we are doing, please consider ordering this book or any other nature-related books using the link provided in the comments section of this podcast. And if you use the code BIRDING, you qualify for a 5% discount on your order. So let's hear from today's guest, Duncan Butchard. Okay, Duncan, I want to welcome you to the Birding Life podcast. It's really cool to get to chat to you finally. I know we've been chatting over the phone for a while, and it's really awesome to get to chat to you today. Yeah, super. Thanks, Adam. Looking forward to looking forward to it. So one of the articles that I read about you called you an observer of birds. It's a really interesting term. What do you feel is the difference between being an observer of birds and simply being a birder? Um, well, okay, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I mean, I'm one of the dinosaurs, I suppose, of the birding fraternity. And uh, I grew up at a time you know, when that was more the norm. And generally, the guys that I followed as a youngster getting into bird, they were really bird watchers. They were, they were people who were studying particular birds and who were devoting a lot of time to documenting what they were seeing. And that's, that's how I grew up with birds, is actually following, following that. And some of the characters, Peter Mundy, uh, Warwick Tarberton, Peter Stain, you know, these, these, these folks have devoted enormous amount of time just sitting quietly and watching what birds were doing. And for me, I find that very absorbing and, and very um, entertaining, and it can be very revealing. You can obviously learn a great deal when you focus on one particular bird or a group of birds rather than a, than a more general approach, which is really, I think, what we see today with birding, which in my mind is more of a, um, it's, it's got more of a sporting sort of twist to it, and it's very much a, a numbers game. 
and it's it's a great deal of fun. I mean, I'm not a twitcher, but I have participated in a few birding big days. There's a great adrenaline rush when you're out there chasing down birds. And what I think is, you know, on the one hand, I think we're missing, you know, the modern generation, let's say, the current generation of birders are missing out in a way by not studying the birds more closely that they are seeing. And particularly, it would be great to see more observations being recorded and written down and made available to others. So there is that. But on the other hand, I think what what birding as a more competitive enterprise has done is it's re-energized the birding and bird watching world. And it's obviously brought a lot lot more younger people into it. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, I was starting to get really worried as to where where all these bird clubs around South Africa were going because, you know, the average age just kept rising every month. But now I think we've got a lot more young people involved in, in birding as a dynamic outdoor fun activity. You spoke about how long you've been birding for. Um, I saw that you joined the South African Ornithological Association in 1978. Um, that is now called BirdLife South Africa. Um, and you spoke of that one change about some of the people that mentored you and maybe that also shaped the type of birder that you you are today or the type of bird watcher you are today besides that kind of thing which what changes have you seen in birding over the the time that you've been involved in in birding and bird watching yeah well very similar to to some of what what i mentioned there is 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 primarily that shift away from studying individual birds and looking at them for a longer period to to obtaining an idea of the presence of birds in in particular places and i think i think one of the big things that has has come up in recent times is the ability through through data based platforms for the public in general to contribute to atlasing schemes and to accumulate data in that way and that's that's something that certainly wasn't wasn't the case in my early days of bird watching, but nowadays it's it's easy and fun for everyone to contribute to these large databases in terms at least of of the occurrence of birds in particular areas. We're still not I think there's still a lot to be learned about what individual bird species require in terms of their uh, life and their ecology. We don't know everything about all these different bird species, but at least now we're mapping their distribution very accurately, and the public at large is able to play a big, big part in that. You know, it's it's a very interesting discussion because you think about it, you know, it's almost as if you are the the bird watcher you are today because of the people that invested into you and you were starting off your birding journey. And It'll be interesting to see the landscape of birding, you know, 20, 30 years from now. Is it going to be, um, are we still going to have the depth of knowledge that um, the previous generation has? Or do you maybe feel that there might be some things that we might be missing 20, 30 years? We might have a whole lot more people birding, but possibly the level of knowledge might not be as much as it was before. Yeah, I think that that very that, that really could be the case. I, I can see that's a distinct uh, possibility and you know one of the things I notice among a lot of bird watchers and birders in South Africa is they don't really have significant bird libraries a lot of a lot of a lot of birders they they limit themselves often to 
the required field guides, and even those are going digital, they're becoming apps. And I know, I know that's exciting and it's instant and it's part and parcel of how we're living in, this, in these times. But, you know, the depth of information you can acquire from, from books, many of which were written 30, 40, 50 years ago, it just really enhances your appreciation of, of nature in general and birds in particular when you can access the sort of, uh, the sort of content that, that was gathered and presented by, by people over many years. And I hope, I hope that never gets lost. I know Handbook of the Birds of the World, the Spanish-based organization, they work closely with BirdLife International. They, you know, they're putting that entire 18-volume set of the Handbook of the Birds of the World, that's going to become an online resource. It is already, but it's going to be it's going to be a living resource. So I think in the future, bird watchers, even those who, those who don't have libraries and don't want to lug books around, are going to be able to access information um, from from that that sort of um, platform. But we we need we need to also encourage these new young birders to explore ways of documenting what they're seeing now and making sure that information is written down somewhere and, and put put in a place where it can be can it benefit others. Now, Duncan, I know you're not a twitcher. You don't chase after birds all over the country, but you have done some really cool trips because you've got a, a very impressive life list. So what have been some of the trips that have stood out for you as a birder? What are some of your favorite places to go and see birds? I have been. I've been very fortunate as a as an as a person interested in nature. I've had a lot of opportunities to get to some amazing places, um, not only in southern Africa but further afield as well. And my work, luckily, has has opened those doors for me. I think. I think in in terms of the South African uh, landscape or the southern African landscape, I, I'm, I'm one of these people who love to to be away from the herd. You know, for me, bird watching is often uh, a solitary pursuit. It's part of, it's part of, part of my way to connect with nature. And it's, it's for me, a, a thing that I love to do quietly on my own and to sit, sit into a place and wait for birds to arrive around you, you know, is my preferred way of, of watching birds. But it is also, obviously, it's great fun to travel with your friends and, and explore places in in small groups. I would say, in terms of South Africa, I think exciting for me have been getting into the forests of the escarpment in Mpumalanga and accessing, you know, parts of that area that are really, really not spoken about much in in most of the bird guides. So, there are little forests at the bottom of Copse Hoop. There are forests on the edge of, of the Barberton Mountains. Most of us probably are, are aware of the woodbush forests, but there are many other little isolated pockets of forests. If you, if you just follow some of these tracks, you can find incredible little sites that, that most people will never get to. And, and that's often, for me, an exciting part of birdwatching. Um, Duncan, you are an amazing artist i mean i've we're going to chat about your garden birds in southern africa and yeah i just loved your art in the book and just you know as i've 
you know, got to know you, just looked a little bit at a little bit more at the art that you've done. And you know, Fancy Peacock's also spoken about this before, but I want to ask you, how do you feel that you being an artist has enhanced your understanding of birds? Well, I think that takes us back to this to this idea of observing, because for me, the artwork, the painting and the drawing of the birds comes from watching them closely and carefully. And if you are trying to depict a bird in some form or another, and, and I often carry around little notebooks and field journals where I, where I scribble my notes and, and I make field sketches of what I'm looking at. And I think if you, you follow that approach of trying to put what you see on a piece of paper as an illustration or a drawing, then you are observing birds much more closely than otherwise. And for me, um, I think the, the, the whole notion of, of drawing a bird is a way of kind of commemorating that, that encounter that you've had. And, and it's a way of celebrating the beauty, I think, of, of the natural world. And if some people later on like what you've done and they want to purchase that, that's a real bonus. So my instinct when I'm looking at birds is, is to look is to find ways to capture them on, on paper, to try and find a way to to create an interesting illustration out of it. If I look at your art over the years, there has been significant changes in your the style of your drawings. You know, how how would you say that your art has evolved over the years and what has shaped that journey? What has helped you to go from where you were before to where you are right now? Okay, so I think in the beginning I I was focusing on garden birds and I was painting them in a very, uh, I would say, an old-fashioned style. It was very much a robin on a branch sort of an approach and not very imaginative. When I look back at those, those early works, it was really very representational of the bird and all the emphasis was on trying to get the accuracy of its plumage correct. And, and that's, that's what you need to do if you're going to be providing illustrations for a field guide. Or a reference book. It's absolutely essential to get all those details correct. And I suppose my first successful foray into that style of painting was with the Vultures of Africa book. And there I created plates, colored plates, in quite a Victorian sort of style, really, of, of the 12 species of vultures that occur in Africa. And when I look back at that work now, I've I find it a bit boring. I find that it's 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 a little bit too predictable. And so over time I loosened my whole technique up and and began to sketch and paint birds much more rapidly uh, with watercolor and pencil and often working in the field and a lot of the time you end up with something really quite unusable but every now and then you know, you, you, you get a, you get a, you capture a moment, you capture a particular moment. And it seems for me to be more rewarding than, than a laborious approach to painting individual feathers of birds is to just capture that character of a bird in a fleeting sort of way. And, and that's always been my intention with the watercolor painting. So I moved from, I moved from the tight gouache which is an opaque paint, which I used for the traditional illustrations. I used from a very tight gouache approach into a looser watercolor 
uh, style. And that really has persisted for, for probably the last 20 odd years. And I still, still love to do that. But in the last couple of years, I've gone again in a different direction with my painting. I'm, I'm now interested in creating very stylized representations of birds, but in a way that nevertheless they're still identifiable as individual species. But I'm stripping away the detail. I'm trying to get rid of as much detail as I can and just making sure that the form of the bird and the character of the bird is retained, but in a very in a very stylistic way. And what's what's been fascinating for me out of that is is the response I've got from from people. You know, the the traditional bird paintings, representative representational art of birds, the, the the big galleries, certainly in South Africa, are just not interested in in that work. It's it's not fitting in with with what people are paying good money for now. And and there's a lot of those really beautiful bird paintings that are just sitting around. They're not in demand, and certainly not from the investors. But what I found with this new work that I'm doing is that it's appealing to a new generation because they're seeing in the stylized uh, representation of the birds, they're seeing a more modern take on birds, and they see birds are becoming, in these works that I'm doing, they're becoming much more of a decorative piece of art rather than, a painting of a particular bird. I suppose the argument that some birders would have, um, and some people that maybe loved your art back back then, um, with the detail that you captured with the birds, would maybe say that let me use the word this Tintin style pop art might not capture as much detail, and you know they might let me use the word they might say you're watering down your approach. But you know what would be your response to those people? Yeah, funny enough, I have had a couple of I have had a couple of people say that. Um, but I, I just feel that as a as a creative person, I have to evolve. I can't I can't sit doing the same thing, uh, you know, for, for for my whole life. And yes, I accept that it's it's not everyone's cup of tea. But what I am doing at the moment is I'm I'm using I'm using these pop art Tintin. In fact, you're quite right to liken it to to the work we many of us are familiar with in the Tintin books because the creator of those stories was a guy called Hergé. He was a Belgian graphic artist. And he's now revered as as one of the forefathers, actually, of the pop art movement. And if you look carefully at those Tintin books, you'll see the finesse and the incredible attention that this guy put into every frame of those Tintin books. And that style he developed is a thing called ligne claire. It's a French phrase which means clear line. And one of the characteristics of the of the Tintin art, if you call it that, is is that it's almost without shadows. The shadows are all eliminated. And whereas as a traditional artist, what you're doing to create form is you you're actually using shadow and shade to represent curvature in in an object. Hergé did away with that altogether, and so you've got these very flat colours, and that's why you see some resemblance to my work with with what he's done, because I've followed that that approach. What what's important for me too is to, and it's been my life goal always, is to somehow find a way to make my art benefit conservation and benefit 
the long-term survival of birds on this planet and the habitats, importantly, that they belong to. And, you know, many artists over the, over the years have been hugely successful in, in actually generating enormous amounts of money for conservation. Robert Bateman, the great Canadian uh, realist, realist um, is one. David Shepard, before him, the elephant painter. These, these are two examples of people who've raised enormous amounts of money for conservation. I haven't been able to do that yet, but I, I still aim and hope to use my art as a, as a way to raise funds for conservation work. And the way I'm starting this off is with this range of poster prints that I'm currently marketing. Uh, these, are, these depict the most iconic travel destinations in Africa. And in those in the, they're basically each one is a graphic art illustration which tries to capture the essence of a particular destination. And in all of those, you'll find a bird is featured, some bird that is particularly relevant to, to that particular place. And next year, I've got some other projects that are going to roll out, and I'm hoping to attach those to conservation agencies where we can, we can actually generate some real revenue for conservation work. Well, while we're chatting about your art, um, if somebody's listening and they'd like to get their hands on some of your art, how do they go about ordering it? Well, I've got a I've got a little online sh- online store. It's called dbnatureworks.com, and and there you can see not only what I've got for sale in terms of poster prints and limited edition prints um, of of mostly coastal birds at this stage in that collection, but you can also see see some of my other work if you dig dig into the blog and you'll find a whole lot of uh, I had a blog for a while which I called never a gull moment and it was really a comical thing because at, at that point in my life when I started it I hadn't really had any memorable moments with a seagull because I was living far from the sea and uh, I, I had a bit of a wordplay there on never a dull moment and decided to call my blog never a gull moment and that's still alive, and you can still see those those stories and watercolor illustrations of my experiences with birds in Borneo and Brazil and all over Africa. So if you go to if you go to www.dbnatureworks.com, you can see what's for sale, and you can also dig into my archive through the blog. Yeah, we'll pop a link into the comment section of this podcast. Um, but many years ago, you mentored guides for cons- the Conservation Corporation Africa, and you helped them to document their intricate knowledge of nature and what they'd encountered. Um, how did that mentorship process look, and how do you feel that ordinary birders can better record that which they observe? Yeah, okay, thanks. That's interesting. That probably was, you know, from you know, from a career point of view, that was a real highlight for me. I've made my living over the years in the ecotourism industry, usually creating resources for lodges and hotels, ecological information that can be passed on to their guests. But what I what what happened in I think it was around about ninety-nine or the you know, nineteen ninety-nine, two thousand. I was I was doing quite a lot of work for CC Africa, as it was called then. Their company is now called And Beyond. Conservation Corporation is now called And Beyond. And what I did there is is they have uh, an in, a, a number of upmarket lodges in six different African countries, 
And each of those lodges has a team of guides and trackers whose job it is to introduce guests to the natural world and and show them not only the big five, but how the whole ecosystem actually works. And, and we're talking here about places such as the Serengeti, the Maasai Mara, the Sabi Sand, Pinda in Zululand was one of their properties and still is, and, and a few other sites, uh, many sites, in fact. So what I, what I did for, for and beyond is I engaged with these teams of guides who were resident at each of these remote properties. And the reason I did that really is that it came, as I was, you know, before, before I'd launched the project with them, it, it was obvious to me in, in chatting to these guides that they were seeing incredible things. They were seeing so many fascinating animal behaviors. And that also because they were moving around the same area every day, 12 months of the year, most of, the, most of them, they were getting to know individual animals and they were learning about individual behaviors and particular happenings within specific habitats. But nothing, none of it was getting written down. So, so my concept was to find a way to enable all of these guides to participate in what we would now call a citizen science program where they could accumulate anecdotal observations and even engage in field projects if they felt capable of that or wanted to learn how to do that. And, and my job was to move around these properties and, and coach the, the guides and encourage them how, you know, exactly how to go about documenting what they were seeing. And back then, most of these guides were illiterate in terms of computer use and everyone was still using little notebooks in their top pocket. Many of the guides wanted to learn technology as well, and they wanted to learn how to operate a computer. So that became part of it later, is how to, how to turn your written work into a, an, a report that you can email. And so for me, it was a, it was, it was a way, it, it was an opportunity to, to get a whole army, actually, of observers recording what they were seeing and we we really did gather a lot of information and, and the project ran for about eight years each year we produced a, a publication called the ecological journal i edited the the submissions of every guide we had about 250 guides that were contributing to that on topics ranging from elephants and lions through through all the birds to dragonflies and termites and vegetation so every year there was a compendium of all these observations, mostly anecdotal observations. So they weren't scientific reports, but they were well-documented anecdotal observations. And because they were put out in a form that made sense, everything was dated, everything was, was precisely ordered, what I found, what we found is that the museums in many places actually started demanding and, and desiring these publications because various researchers were finding information in there that was of, of great value to them. So for me, it was really a career highlight, actually coaching and mentoring so many people through a project that, that actually ended up in a, in a really useful format. So Duncan, one of the birds 
uh, sorry, one of the books that you recently uh, wrote was Garden Birds in Southern Africa. Um, this book is amazing. Um, it's a delightful combination of stunning photography, paintings, along with insightful text. So how do you approach the writing of a book? Because what I love about this book is that there's both um, knowledge that is accessible, easy to understand, but at the same time, it's also, there's a lot of artistic expression. How do you approach the writing of a book? Okay, well, I was very lucky in that in that particular book to work with Pippa Parker and her team at Strake Nature, and they, you know, they were very um, open to my ideas of how this book should look, and not not every author gets that opportunity. So I'm very grateful to her design team. In fact, Pippa came, Pippa approached me because I had written a couple of other books for Strake over the years, a guide to the Okavango Delta, and a couple of others, but. But it seemed that there was a need for a new garden bird book because there was nothing in print at the moment. Pippa approached me and I thought that it would be fun to to do it in a way that hadn't been done before and make it very visual, but obviously still as interesting as possible. Actually, this book of mine, Garden Birds in Southern Africa, came out exactly 50 years, half a century after the first book that was written on this topic by Kenneth Newman. His Garden Birds in South Africa was published in 1967. Mine came out in 2017. So uh, it was it was fun to put it together. It was almost also a coming back to my original roots with with bird watching because I began bird watching in my own garden, as many people do, and that's where that's where your interest in birds often begins. And I, it felt to me like a suitable and a good project to to wrap up my own experience with birds. Luckily, I've lived in Johannesburg, I've lived in the Lowfelt, and I've lived now for six years in the Cape. So I've got a pretty good countrywide perspective on what you can do in a garden to make it, make it a great place for birds and the biodiversity that they actually depend upon. So that was really my goal with the, the Garden Bird Book. And, you know, it was a, it was a culmination, really, of of several decades of looking at crested barbets and hardy dars and white eyes and sunbirds. When it comes to garden books on, on, on garden birds and that, I'll be honest with you, a lot of these, the books I've read on garden uh, plant on plants and that type of thing for gardens are about as exciting as reading the telephone directory. Not that you get telephone directories anymore, but they're not very exciting. But one thing I love about this book is it's, the inf- like I already said, the information is really, really good. But at the same time, it's simple enough for almost anyone to understand. You know, how, how does that approach look? I mean, you've, you're, you know, just speaking to you, you're a very intelligent person, but you're able to convey information across in a way that makes sense to a person that might not be intellectual. Yeah, thanks. That's also been part of what I've had to do, I guess, through my work in the ecotourism industry is sort of dumbing down a lot of a lot of technical information a lot of the time. So I've got, I've got fairly competent at that. Uh, with, with the Garden Bird book, the, the approach, what, particularly with the plants, was to, yeah, to make them exciting. I mean, plants, plants are so interesting. And, and, of course, they're the base of the food web that birds depend upon. So I wanted, to, I wanted in the book to, to emphasize the fact that the birds that you're going to see in your garden ultimately going to depend on what you plant there. And, and this is the beginning of what, what we now starting to refer to as rewilding. 
and, and how we can let all forms of nature come into our little garden spaces. And the birds are the, I mean, the plants are the starting point for that. So in the case of, of the Garden Bird book, I singled out, I think, about 40 or more really suitable trees and shrubs that that people can grow in most parts of Southern Africa. And I've, I've provided information there on, on what size is this plant likely to reach? How big is it supposed to get? What What is it benefits is it going to bring to a particular suite of birds? For example, the, the wild pear, uh, Kigalaria africana, that's a tree that grows pretty much all over the high felt. It occurs here in the Cape, grows on the escarpment. And it's not a very uh, conspicuous looking tree. It doesn't look like much. Not very many people grow them in their gardens. And if they do, what you're going to find with that particular tree is that at a certain time of year, the foliage is going to get decimated and stripped by hordes of caterpillars that are going to come in and feed. The little caterpillars from the Acrea butterfly are going to come and, and strip the foliage of that tree. But if you stick around, what you, find, what you find is the cycle of the caterpillars passes, the leaves re-sprout on the tree, and it then, it then flowers and produces these, these uh, little fruits with, with berries on them that, that attract hordes of, hordes of uh, fruit-eating, berry-eating birds. And, of course, the caterpillars themselves pull in uh, cuckoos and, and other other birds that that love munching on caterpillars so that's one example of a tree that it may not be the most ornamental pretty tree to have in your garden but if you put it in your garden you're gonna you're gonna allow for a whole uh, food chain to unravel in front of you which will which will will benefit birds and that's what that's what we all need to be doing in our garden spaces is to is to create these little islands of biodiversity that that are going to enable insectivores and, and, and vertebrates that they need to persist in the face of really massive human degradation of the landscape. What I also loved about the book was the write-ups of 101 birds that are most likely to appear in the garden. And the write-ups are simple. It's really for somebody who's listening who might not be a birder who might just be a casual bird watcher, just enjoys birds in their garden. This is really, really awesome. I mean, it's just stuff like a little bit about the bird. It's You speak there about um, feeding, um, the feeding needs, breeding, um, the voice in terms of the call of the bird, the lifespan of the bird, garden needs. And it's a really um, also similar species. And it's, it's it, again, I just love the fact that this book is so accessible for you know, not just for birders, but for even for casual bird watchers. Something uh, we watched, uh, one of the big um, documentaries of this year was Sir David Attenborough's Netflix documentary, A Life on Our Planet. And it speaks about the devastating effects of habitat in the world. Um, you spoke of that term rewilding. Do you feel that planting nature-friendly gardens in some small way reverses this impact? Um, yeah, of course. I think absolutely it does, um, and it's it's one of the it's one of the only things open only avenues open to us at the moment in our urban areas is to is to provide ways for nature to cling on and hang on. I'm I'm optimistic that that in the future, I mean we we've been shaken really hard this year. The whole planet, at least the human 
population has been shaken really hard this year with the virus. Hopefully, it's going to be a big wake-up call to governments and around the world to to think about how we're going to live with nature going forward. And so I do believe that we have the potential as a species to sort this out and to work it out. It's daunting because we, we occur in very high numbers as a species, but I think, I think we are a very bright animal, and I think there are going to be ways to, to come out of this deep hole. We seem to be intent on digging for ourselves, and I think what we can do as individual property owners, landowners, even if they're little tiny bits of land in suburbia, is we can, we can, we can conduct this real rewilding. We can try and provide niches for these tiny organisms which, which are going to form the basis of a big recovery on our planet if we, if we get to that point. We want to know that we haven't wasted the opportunity to provide these, these uh, little miniature... I think if you look at your, ga- your, your garden as a miniature game reserve, think of it as a little miniature nature reserve and, and do what you can to, to host as many diverse species as possible. I know I'm t- I mean, you know a lot of people are going to be hearing this and going to say this guy's cuckoo he's too optimistic we're never going to be able to you know rebuild nature again once it's been destroyed but I think I think there are going to be ways I think you would be surprised I mean we're currently faced with enormous problems regarding alien infestations particularly of plants but also of other organisms but I think bright minds in the future are going to find ways to turn that back and we're going to we're going to find biological control methods and others that are going to be able to reclaim and restore damaged habitats, damaged ecosystems. And I think once we get our population in check, different parts of the planet, we're going to find that we're going to have to we're going to have to rebuild ecosystems in a way that you know provide the sustainable resources for for the human race and for nature in general. We are part of nature. We're not separate from it so all we can do you know really as as individuals and as uh as property owners is we can do our little bit to provide a home for those other life forms that we share the planet with and duncan last question just in a couple of minutes um you in your 60s what legacy do you wish to leave one day for the next generation sure yeah um that's a good one. I would like to think that that what I've done with my life and my career in in writing about birds and nature and and illustrating them and painting birds, I would like to think that that might have inspired a few others to to carry on uh, once I'm once I'm out of the picture. But more than that, I think you know I'm pushing hard with what I'm doing career-wise because I'm really committed and, and determined to to actually raise funds for conservation through my art. And and that's that's what I want to be doing with the last couple of years that I've got, a few and hopefully ten or more. I want the art to have got into a place where it's actually generating revenue for for organizations such as BirdLife and others that I feel are doing important conservation work. It's a it's a hopeful and an optimistic goal, but it's one that I'm committed to working towards. And so, yes, that would be it. It would be it would be leaving a legacy through being able to fund 
conservation work through my art. Well, Duncan, I really want to say thanks for so much for being on the show. I just, you know, we haven't even touched on everything. Here's so much more to your life than we haven't even had, had a chance to chat about. We'll have a chat, I'm sure, in a later podcast. But just thank you for the work you've done in, in conservation. I know you're involved in stuff with around vultures and all that before. And I know you've really, you've really had a huge impact. So we just want to say thank you for being on the show and for giving up your precious time. And we look forward to chatting soon. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks. Thanks very much, Adam. It's been great chatting with you. We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books to help get all the best birding resources into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life Project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link in either the comment section of this podcast or in our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Be sure to head over to our website www.thebirdinglife.com and check out all the exciting resources that we have on our website, including our exciting forum section to connect you with the world of birding, birders, and exciting birds out there. Do not forget to follow The Birding Life on Instagram and Facebook. We really appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out Birdlasser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a laugh list while playing your part in social conservation. As well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.